0: Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper and uh, it's Sunday January 20th,
1: 2019.
0: We're watching the playoffs. We're watching
1: the playoffs but we've got a lot to talk about uh, You know, as we uh, cover various things going on. Uh, we're going to get to um, how to invest your money which I think everyone wants to do. That's right, really? and, Aren't there enough podcasts and, uh, about that? And without going to too much detail, a fascinating story of a brush with greatness at Mohonk, which we didn't tell you about last week. But so hang on for that. But first, let's start with uh, what we're up to now.
0: Okay, I should say playoffs, meaning football of playoffs. Course, everybody you know, does we it. have uh, listeners from around the globe. That's true. They may not football. be privy to the American sports schedule. Let's hope so. But there you have it. Yeah. Okay, and uh, actually, we um, were kind of binge-watching last week. This is our
1: version of binge-watching, which we, is once every two days.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, every single night we were watching Bodyguard. Bodyguard. Man. And uh, it was fantastic. It was starring Richard Madden, and uh, he was the bodyguard for the Home Secretary, played by Keely Haas. Yes. And uh, it was gripping.
1: (laughs) Well, listen, I liked it. I think perhaps you found it more gripping than I did. It might be because uh, the bodyguard might have been more compelling in your mind. I will say it was sort of smoldering. Is that a fair... uh, He was
0: smoldering? Yes. Well, I I don't know. Um, He was difficult. He has a lot of issues. He has issues. But it was an excellent show. It was recommended to us by the Zeke...
1: Is Zeekster? Your, yeah. Your youngest son? Yes.
0: And uh, it was a good recommendation. Uh,
1: and it's only, what was it? Six episodes. Five or six episodes. You don't yeah. have to commit your entire life to it. And right. it was a leading show in the BBC. It was right up there with Downton Abbey. Matter of fact, yeah, more watched I, than Downton Abbey. I
0: don't, I don't remember the exact statistic. More people watched the yeah. final show of it than, I don't know.
1: All right. What, whatever.
0: It's, it it, it in uh, England, it was extremely popular. Right, so for good reason. We can recommend it.
1: Yeah, so so let's get to what's going on here. In the paper. We're reading the paper. And, of course, the big story was Carol Channing passed away this week. I
0: think it was big for some people. I, You know, actually, didn't get a huge amount of play uh, on the TV. Is that was right? It, it, yeah, it wasn't like Mary Tyler Moore.
1: Oh, she was a much bigger star than Mary Tyler Moore.
0: Well, not according to... And I like Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's interesting about Carol Channing, who's obviously... Hello,
0: Carol. Yes, identified... Hello, Carol. Anything
1: to get you singing. She's identified, oh, Dolly. Uh, but you know what I learned in going back uh, on looking at her career? Uh, her first success was "Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in 1949. I didn't realize how big a success that was. And what we learned today is she was on the cover of Time Magazine, for being a gentleman of preferred. And she
0: blonde. was in her twenties or yeah, something. Yeah, she was like yeah. twenty
1: eight years old. Yeah. So that was huge. The other but what's odd about her, and it's and it's because of the way she was, she was kind of uh, bigger than life, over the top, the way she looked and everything. She didn't get regular jobs. She had uh, you know, mediocre shows she got to replace Rosalind Russell uh in Wonderful Town, where I understand she was great. It would have been interesting to see. But there's between uh Gentleman from the Blondes at Hello Dolly, there's 15 years. And they wrote a show with her in mind. That's the way she gets a part. And uh, Jerry Herman and others say, we're writing a show, we think it's for you. 15 years. But, you know, she was uh, unique. And she embodied that character in Hello Dolly. And she played it uh, a zillion times. Um, and uh, she's just a, a great performer. I mean, the, the kind of things that, that come to mind that are kind of unusual and different about her uh is that well she's a little loopy she played loopy characters. she was a little loopy in real life which was endearing actually but she was loopy in part because people saw her as a health nut i mean she would go to all these restaurants after the shows with a little tupperware filled with like carrot sticks or something and uh, that was considered completely odd uh, you know
0: it would still be odd
1: yeah to well, show
0: up at any restaurant i'm not saying it's not With odd. your
1: own food I think it's not odd, but she did live to be ninety-seven. I don't, so somebody might want to make that connection. Uh, there may yeah, be. You know,
0: your father lived to be ninety-five, and he may, never ate a carrot in his life. Yeah, well, look, you know, I, uh, it,
1: it's what we call anecdotal evidence. The, okay. The other thing is they, they made a the Times, and I think this is fair. On uh, the front page of the newspaper had the big uh, a, a Al Hirschfeld caricature, and we all I think everyone knows who Al Hirschfeld is, the caricaturist. Who had these sort of bigger life drawings of the Broadway stars? And of course, Yeah, And
0: they were sort of caricatures, and uh, he hid the name of his daughter. Nina. In the pictures. The little number would, on the bottom right. Right, and yeah. you try to count all the Ninas. And the numbers the there, are
1: the New York Times, the two. And okay. I, I, I haven't been able to find them, honestly. Okay. But in any event, uh, but she was famous for that because of her look. And uh, they actually, I'm looking because at a She book. was a caricature. She was. And I'm looking at a book by a fellow named Eddie Shapiro that you had bought called Nothing Like a Dame, in which is just a bunch of interviews of folks, including Carol Channing, in this case, when she was uh, 91. And uh, he asked her, he said, You've been caricatured, of course, by Al Hirschfeld, and he said you were his favorite subject. So Channing says, Well, zero mostella and me. That's a dubious compliment. <laughs> and the interviewer says well you two share and she finishes the sentence an exaggeration of some kind that's totally unacceptable as a human being <laughs> and he says unacceptable and she responds would you like to look like zero mastel <laughs> uh anyway this book is, is great funny stories but i'll just tell one and then we'll, we'll move on it's a great story uh about the fact that uh well i, I should say carol channing never got the job to uh, to be in a movie, uh, she was she was in *Gentlemen Prefer Blondes* as a play, and the movie was Marilyn Monroe. She was in Hello, Dolly* as a play, and the movie was uh, Barbra Streisand. And uh, she said, for three weeks, Marilyn Monroe sat in the third row of the theater, studying her as she prepared to play the part in *Gentlemen Prefer Blondes*. And the guy who was the conductor was a little bit of a ladies' man, and he he could barely conduct. Uh, the, the orchestra. With her, with Because he was Monroe staring, in the front staring room. at yeah. Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. So people kept saying to, there was one guy who was the musical accompanist who had his back to Marilyn named Bus Davis. And, and, uh, Carol Channing says he was the greatest musical accompanist of all time and he was gay. But, and, and people kept saying, Bus, you have to turn around and look at Marilyn Monroe. You have to turn around and look at her. And finally, after a week, he turns around and looks at her and he turns someone and says, Ask her, does she have a brother? <laughs> so, so there you go. Uh, Hilarious. <laughs> anyway, Carol Channing was uh, uh, great. Um, there was a story about. Uh, I was going to get the sports quickly. Uh, Annie Murray. Annie Murray retired, and what's interesting about that, other than the fact that he's a, a you know the great tennis Roger player
0: Federer lost
1: yesterday, right? No, I didn't. I yeah. didn't know he was, to I, like. Uh, that's going to happen. A right? young kid. He's like sixty. I mean uh <laughs> it's not that big a deal but Andy Murray's much younger. My mother's upset. So. Yeah your mother will get over it. Uh Murray Australian Murray's, Open. Yeah Australian okay. Open. Well, it's hot in the you know. mean he's not going to win that. It's a heat thing. But uh Andy Murray, uh, much younger, he would have thought he went would go on much longer than uh Roger Federer, but no. Um he retired. He's got a bad hip. He's going to have to have surgery and one interesting fallout to this is that uh, a lot of women tennis players expressed, uh, you know, admiration, but also sorrow that he was leaving because he was a big supporter of women's tennis. Mm-hmm. His mother was a guiding force behind his athletic development. She was athletic herself. And he went out of his way, uh, to talk about women's tennis. And in fact, he was first made the only, uh, male player was a top player to have a women's coach, which he did. Uh, so, um... There's a funny article in the Times that talks about this, and they have a lot of quotes from people, including Serena, and saying, like, uh, you know, it's a huge loss, and uh, he's he's the greatest guy. Uh, They also have a funny exchange uh, on uh, the Ellen DeGeneres show where Sarah Silverman says to Ellen DeGeneres, uh, you know, if she's looking to date somebody, uh, Silverman says, I like a masculine man, but he has to be feminist. That contrast is very hot to me. Uh, Like Andy Murray DeGeneres suggested... Oh, my God, like Andy Murray, Silverman exclaimed. Yes. So there you go. Uh, he's, off the, you know, he's off the tennis circuit, but I guess he's still on the market. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you had, uh, there was some article about, uh, well, you should explain it. Uh, well, speaking of dating. Yeah. Uh,
0: we have bird sex once again.
1: Okay. Is that what I'm allowed to talk about? Well, you can talk about what you want. You had the, yes, you also had an article about the, a real controversy with respect to the comments on women's bodies, which is kind of the Oh, you want me to do that first? Sure, okay. go ahead. All right.
0: Uh, all right. right. So back to uh, um, women and images of women. There's a, a big uh, to-do, brouhaha, in uh, La Belle, France. Yeah. Um, a, uh, a writer, Jan Mox. Yeah. Um, novelist, filmmaker, commentator, uh, actually in an interview um, remarked that he doesn't uh, date women his own age. He's like Hmm. 60-something. He uh, prefers women, uh, Asian women, in their 20s. Uh, And uh, he would not uh, consider dating a woman uh, over 50, he said. He said, women in their 20s, uh, you know... Uh, have extraordinary bodies. Uh, have you seen a woman in her 50s, he says? Nothing extraordinary about those bodies. Really? And this caused an uproar. Really? <laughs> really? People were, were, were <laughs> ticked France. about that?
1: And those uh, people, They're sensitive in France.
0: And so there's all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, chatter, uh, mean things uh, being said about him. Yeah. I mean, you know, the women in France, uh, they do not want to be reduced to merely their sexual allure, but uh, but if necessary, though, that's like okay. To prove, with yeah, <laughs> like to know they've still got it.
1: Exactly, it's not and, nothing. And
0: you know, and French women are, you know, to some extent, um, successful in their sexuality. Uh, it said also in this. I'm going to take your word it. was word in an op-ed so article, yeah. actually, in the Times wow. by Pamela Druck- Druckerman. Um, Titled The Revenge of the Middle-Aged French Woman. Oh. And uh, she says that uh, actually studies show that French women stay sexually active uh, much more than American women over 50, okay. etc. So, uh, so proceeded uh, all kinds of diatribes about uh, beautiful uh, women over 50, including Julia Roberts, Halle Berry, and various... Uh, um, French women, etc., and uh, the author Jan Mox at a certain point says, "I just want women to over fifty to stop sending me pictures of their breasts and buttocks." (laughs) That's all it takes. That's all it
1: takes is uh, that Uh, kind of comment. So
0: that's what's going on in uh, all right. That's human human sexuality. Speaking of gay, yeah, the. there was uh, a tour I read about in uh, the Polar Museum at Cambridge University being given by Dan Vo, who drew a, a his group's attention to a smooth white penguin egg found in Antarctica in the early 1900s. It was collected on an exhibition that included George Murray Levick, the author of a semi-secret Yeah. 1915 paper: The sexual habits of the Adelie penguin. Mm. Mr. Vaux said he observed things that he thought were so scandalous he overwrote them. He rewrote them in Greek. Specifically, the explorers saw two men, male penguins, as Mr. Vaux says, going at it. Oh my God! Um, So, so that um, tickled. uh, my fancy and then i saw an article in the new york times about a pair of gay penguin parents and it, it was a story of a an aquarium in sydney australia yeah. and uh, a story of two male penguins i don't r- really know how to uh, pronounce these names well, Magic is one. Magic, I know yeah. how to pronounce. And Sven.
1: And uh, S-P-H-E-N. We I don't know, know like. if that's yeah. their names. That's the names the people gave them. Who knows what their names are? What their <laughs> penguin names are? Yeah, be different okay. penguins. Okay. Anyway. Might be Rabinowitz um, or something like that. So yeah. uh, they're,
0: it, they're in an enclosure with a bunch of young penguins, uh, you know, uh, Laying eggs for the first time, etc., and they had been observed for a while, and they were a couple. The you know the uh, penguin keepers observed them doing the mating dance, and which involves uh, dancing around a little bit and picking up pebbles and bringing them to each other. And if you accept the pebble, and that means you accept uh, the the penguin as a mate. Mm-hmm. And you build your little nest and you sing to each other and all that. So they were a definite pe- uh, couple. Um, magic, younger, outgoing, uh, very physical, loved visitors, loved humans. Sven, not so much. Older, quiet, a little bit taller. Kept okay. um, so, to himself. Anyway. That was his so, kindle
1: most of the evening. Uh, yeah,
0: the yeah. Uh, The... Um, it apparently... Penguins uh, aren't born fabulous parents, okay. Mm. And the is, keepers really? had yeah. noticed that uh, first time around with um, with the laying of the eggs, it's a touch and go matter, mm. okay. They, um, and that uh, you know many of these uh, new chicks may not survive right. because the penguin parents just don't know what I, the yeah, heck they're doing. I, I anyway, is going. Yeah. so uh, they observed that in particular one. Um, uh, couple was kind of ignoring uh, one of their eggs completely so they squirreled it over to Sven and Magic's yeah. nest yeah. and Sven and Magic took it on and sat on it and uh, raised it and uh, they said that Magic wasn't so great at the beginning because he's young you yeah. know and excitable but Sven kind of uh, strained about yeah. taught him what to do And in the end, only their chick survived. All the other uh, new hatchlings uh, did not uh, live Hmm. in the group. So there you have it, an interesting game character story in the penguin world in Australia. what,
1: What I'm still wondering, what's the Greek phrase for going at it? uh you know maybe we can look you know back. the
0: greeks went at it a lot and <laughs> so, so, so I, I suspect there are many in many ways greek words it's like the, uh, uh, the uh, for that the, uh, yeah just don't the eskimo word for snowflake get me started yeah,
1: it's just as well uh all right we got to get to sports as you mentioned it's all about the playoffs you're dying to talk about the playoffs i of course am interested in the scientific aspects of sport and what we have is the marriage of science and sports an article in new york times today about football but in particular how are they making those one-hand catches? You're wondering Well, it must be
0: very scientific. It is, it
1: is. And you're thinking that these guys are just better players, bigger hands, more coordinated, uh, stronger grips. And the answer is no, 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 and no. The answer is that they have silicone gloves. And uh, you're saying, well, gee, guys have been wearing gloves for a long time. But the answer to that is not like this. The uh, These gloves have been developed over the last 20 years. I mean, it starts from, the story goes way back to, when people starting, started wearing um, gloves which were used by folks who worked with glass, they were called glass cutters gloves.
0: Oh, I thought you, you, it was going to go way back to like Spider-Man. No, something.
1: no, no. Spider-Man actually is, is, is not a real person. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. The thing is that glass cutters gloves were rubbery mitts designed to catch, well, designed to so you wouldn't get cut by glass. But And people, uh, football players wore that, and they wore what they called scuba gloves. It was all something. But meanwhile, there was a scientist in Pakistan who was consulted on this. And it turns out if you use a silicon polymer, it's sort of half liquid, half solid. And when uh, a ball hits the glove, it acts like a liquid. And it slows up the ball in the hand. And hence, you have the silicon polymer gloves tremendously successful. So not only, well, first of all, you see it on everybody. Secondly, uh, you do see, of course, the Beckham great one hand cast, but you're seeing players in college even on a regular basis so making. Beckham one glove? Oh yes,
0: and are you giving me all these details about it because we're going to make our own? Uh, <laughs>
1: I wasn't thinking about it, but if that's what you want to do, sure, why not? Uh, in any event, uh, it's, that's the explanation. That's why it looks different at receivers these days. It looks different to me. You keep saying, how do you catch that? How do you catch that? One hand or two hand? Not used to seeing people catch balls the way they do now, and that's exactly Does that reason.
0: upset you? Does, is that like cheating?
1: No. No. Uh, it, it used to be cheating. Um, Here's how it used to be cheating. But the, you, no, you, no, no, no. Let me explain why it used okay. to be cheating. It used to be people used something called stick em. It used to be that receivers would put this sticky stuff on their hands, and that would help them catch the gloves. But like, is and it is catch in the, the gloves? It's, a, it's not. Let, let me finish the stickum story. So the thing with the stickum that only became illegal because it left a residue. It made for dirty football. It got on people's uniforms. It was, you know, a sanitary <laughs> issue. It was gross. So they said, forget it. But there's nothing that's legal about helping yourself catch the ball. Otherwise, so as long as the polymer doesn't leak off on the football, you're okay. All right. Good. They, we've thought we about that this. Up. All right, yeah. the second story is a little... Neatness uh, counts. ...is a little sad. Um, uh, but it is science and sports, and I guess it's it's a, it's a an, it's an advancement. But uh, Mel Stottlemyre died in mm-hmm. 77. Mm-hmm. He was a great pitcher for the Yankees. What I had forgotten about Stottlemyre uh, is that his great success was not achieved when the Yankees were a great team, and that would be easy to dismiss. But he won 20 games four times when the Yankees were terrible. And that is a huge achievement. And... He, 20 uh, games. 20 games in a season. Four different seasons. Four different seasons, right. And uh, nobody does that anymore. But even then, it was a tremendous uh, accomplishment. And then he developed uh, shoulder problems. And here's uh, and he became a great pitching coach for the Yankees and the Mets. He's one of the few figures who's a major person in connection with both New York franchises. As a matter of fact, I can't think of anybody else who's in that category. Um, but... Uh, What happened, uh, this is sad, actually, Uh, he died um, of, uh, let's see, uh, what's called multiple uh, myeloma. And his son uh, died of, he had a son that was died of of leukemia. He had two sons who actually pitched in the major leagues, but he had another son who died at a young age of leukemia. And in his view, both his disease and his young son's disease, his view were likely caused by the radiation treatments that Mel Stolmeyer received when he hurt his shoulder with the Yankees.
0: Yes, I have heard that uh, radiation uh, um, does, can result in leukemia. Right. Uh, so
1: he is, and this is, of course, before his son was born. And he, uh, yeah, again, it's anecdotal, but it made a very complicated relationship between him and the Yankees. Later he went back to the Yankees, even though he wow. harbored in his mind. I mean, wow. he's, he's had over for 20 years. And, uh, and his son, of course, had passed away years before that. So uh, they don't do that anymore. I mean, there's an advancement there, but it's still a sad story. And, yeah. and, and the final story, sports, uh, is kind of a one-liner about uh, bucking broncos. Bucking broncos are still a thing. Uh, bull riding is a big business. And, uh, you know, it's as you remember from the movies or whatever. Guy gets on a bull, the bull goes crazy, and can you stay on for eight seconds or not? Eight seconds is the limit. And usually, uh, or often, they can't. And, and the reason that they can't now, that they almost never can now, and why is it? It is because they breed the bulls to be better at bucking. All right? In other words, these, these the bulls you see today are much more athletic and stronger and wilder than they were 15, 20 years ago. Well, uh, they haven't been improving the cowboys the same way. Uh, or as they put in the article, if they keep breeding better bulls, they're going to have to start breeding better bull riders, and they're not. And these guys can't stay on the bulls anymore. So uh, you have scientific developments which are—they thought in the short run helping the sport because they're making it more exciting. But in the long run, the Sticky bulls seats, are outmatching right? silicone on the seats. <laughs> See, I didn't think about that. <laughs> That's. Cool.
0: I thought you were going to tie this all together.
1: Uh, you did. I was waiting it's, for you. I okay. I, that was an opening for you. Well, I'm concerned about the future of. I smell startup. Yeah. is that a good smell or a, <laughs> what's that like
0: <laughs> okay. um all right well I don't know if I can get farther away from the world of uh, bucking broncos is they're not broncos I think broncos are horses okay bucking okay. bulls uh, yeah. bulls okay um, but uh, let's go back to the refined oh, uh, atmosphere of the Grolier Book Club. Yeah, the Bo- Grolier Club in uh, Manhattan, um, East Sixtieth Street. Mm-hmm. It's a townhouse, a private club. Uh, Society of Bibliophiles. You know right. what a bibliophile is? Someone who loves books. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a, um, like I said, a private club, but you can go there to look at their exhibitions. And they have uh, a lot of books. Uh, their big collection, if you can believe it, is of book auction catalogs. Okay. um which helps you trace the history of various books and their provenance etc which can be really important and they're devoted to the cause of exhibition and collection of books and prints which they feel are were as worthy of display as paintings and sculptures. Of course, you know, back over 100 years ago when uh, they first started this, uh, you know um, there was reason to you know fight, for all uh, this attention. Well, you know, keep in mind that uh, as books began to be, you know, going back to the 15th century, as books began to be printed, yeah. you know, people were worried that uh, you know the artistic value of them would suffer relative to manuscripts, mm-hmm. handwritten books, and then we get into the twen- 20th century where you really got all these mass production methodologies yeah. and then even a greater fear that the beauty of, uh, the you know, the artistic quality of the books would suffer. So, um, hence, an attempt to right. uh, kind of promote and embrace okay. uh, this work. I should mention that uh, I think even as we speak, what's coming up is Bibliography Week in New York where there's a tremendous amount a whole of week? events. Yeah. It's a whole week. Oh, it's oh. like uh, Comic-Con Probably. or con I mean, How'd you get a hotel uh, room? I, and, uh, uh, yeah, I don't even know. Yeah. But they have all kinds of uh, talks and lectures, and uh, it's a real geek fest, mm. as mm. they mm. mentioned in the Grolier Cub Club uh, oh. article. Anyway, there's a great exhibition there right now about uh, French uh, books and manuscripts, and it's just a you know a beautiful old building, uh, reminiscent of one of those you know uh, great private libraries mm-hmm. and uh, book. Uh, Cellar places where you, you know okay. uh, that are so beautiful, and they also mention that uh, there is an interesting uh, exhibition up at the Yale uh, Library of Rare Books right now called Bibliomania.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. Uh, with uh, with actually, and here's a connection between Grolier and um, the Yale Bibliomania. Uh, in the Bibliomania, there's the a uh, uh, exhibition of the collection, concerning the collection of Thomas Phillips from England, who I guess was trying to, it's called Every Book in the World, and he went crazy collecting. His collection was so massive, after he died it took over a hundred years to catalog and disperse, mm. and one of the displays in the Grolier Club is his, one of his closets, which is just this huge pile. It's a, you know book hoarder's closet of all these uh, manuscripts and papers and Mm -hmm. kind of a cautionary tale. Anyway, there's some other fun things there, uh, including an exhibition of a collection from, you know, know, it's uh, collected by uh, some uh, Italian guys in the 16th century or whatever. But what's interesting in that collection is they have books where the four edges you know, the edges of the book, the opposite side from the spine, are actually painted mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, quite nice little paintings done by a distant cousin of Titian. Uh, but anyway, they're kind of cool looking. That would be fun to see. Also, there's some uh, marble papers, etc. That's going to be there for a while. So, Grolier Club and... Uh,
1: Bibliography week. You know, That sounds like a salesman. Lots of fun. Salesman. It sounds like a salesman saying, you know who did the the, uh, painting on the other side of the book? Distant Cousin of Titian. Distant Cousin. You know, it sounds a little vague to me.
0: Cesare Vitellio. Oh, there you go. Great name. All right. All right. I'm
1: I'm out of my week. All right. So uh, here's something that, you know, we had to talk about. We had a lot to talk about. This has to be addressed. Commuting scarf. Someone has knitted a commuting scarf. A woman who has been taking a regular train journey from a town in the Bavarian countryside to Munich every day, that's where she works, has been suffering from the experience of train delays, something we know about in a New Jersey transit. This I don't even believe,
0: because all my life people have talked about how much better trains are well, in Europe than ent- in the U.S. Uh, you're right they on have here. have delays?
1: That's the issue. It turns out she suffered in term, interminable, but real train delays on a regular basis. Yeah, and here's she, the deal.
0: Probably the trains were delayed one or no, two no, minutes.
1: No. no, they were delayed. And she she ended up knitting a scarf, and it's too complicated to describe. I've read the article three times. I don't knitting get it. Knitting is complicated. No, she's knitting know it. No it's complicated. It, there's Only code. women can do it. There's code as to whether what color she uses is the length of the delay. So you have these various bars in the scarf that signify different length delays I still can't figure it out. Uh, in other words, delays are more than a half hour or in red, this is a black and white picture. I mean, But apparently there's quite a lot of information in this scarf people will be interpreting for years and years. Well, and what's why interesting, are you telling us about this? Are well, you getting ready to start your own delay you know, scarf? You're, always just, I'm, I'm, you're not letting me get this story That's out. going to be a long scarf. Well, first of all, it will be a long scarf. Secondly, it will be tremendously profitable because this was just sold on eBay for $8,600. All right? Now, so if
0: things go south with the football playoffs, yes, we nice. can
1: depend on your income That's from right.
0: your commuting scarf?
1: Because things are not going south with New Jersey transit. It's just sitting there at Metuchen. Uh, I'll be knitting a scarf. I might queen it's
0: a, of the train delays. Well, look,
1: it's it's like Madame Defarge in Tale of Two Cities knitting while people are being beheaded. It's the same mood you're in, you know. And uh, I would probably do it a little differently, frankly. I would probably just allow the length of the delay indicate how long the bar was in the scarf just an idea but on your point about the germany thing here's the quote uh it has become somewhat of an urban myth that germans are always on time and trains in germany are on time but it's not always true and that's the message they're getting out here so maybe that gives you a pass for new jersey transit even the germans can't get it right and uh, they're knitting about it and uh i don't know maybe there's a scarf in my future or your future it could be a gift Christmas is coming, you know? (laughs)
0: Can't wait. Yeah. You should start now. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so this week I read an op-ed piece by David Brooks. Mm -hmm. Not a big David Brooks fan, actually, but uh, he talked a little bit about teaching and learning, and uh, he told a story where he was teaching, and... uh, he had to cut back his office hours, and he mentioned it to his students because he was having a personal problem, and uh, you know he was. I, know, say, I think
1: he said it was a family issue.
0: A family issue, yeah, right. personal problem, right. uh, and uh, was wasn't going to be able to have office hours. And as a result, people uh, emailed him and offered him prayers. Yeah. And, uh, but the big thing is. He says the whole atmosphere of the class changed, mm-hmm. and it was much more positive. And he felt it helped the uh, he helped the class. It helped the learning. And so he looked at it a little bit, looked at uh, some research, and indeed, research seems to show that emotion is essential to learning in the sense that it can be essential to reason. Emotion helps you assign value to things. Uh, And he quoted a study by Patricia Kuhl at the University of Washington where she took infants learning to speak Chinese, learning Chinese. And uh, face-to-face, the uh, infants were learning like crazy, absorbing the Chinese like crazy. And uh, the ones who instead uh, did it by video uh, showed rapt attention, okay, really studied the video, but didn't seem to learn a thing. Really? Uh, so, I mean, I'm not sure what that tells you about emotion. It might tell you more uh, about face to face versus. Well, no, there's no, uh, there's no connection there. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and he does say that uh, when classes are going well, there's evidence that. Uh, Student brains and teacher brains are in this kind of uh, sync that uh, makes learning succeed. So that was interesting to me. uh, because I I think that is interesting. And uh, you do notice once in a while a sense of chemistry uh, in a particular class that seems to help the effort. Mm. And it is true. You're trying to engage the students and make this material matter to them. Yeah. It's nice to think that if it matters to the crusty old teacher, it might matter to them. Yeah,
1: no, there's something to that. I'll go with that. All right, so look, we promised, uh, you know, how to become a huge zillionaire based on investing, and they we're coming through with that. And the reason... We're, oh, uh, that's
0: not the football pool? No, it's yeah. not the football okay. Very
1: few people can do what we're doing with football pool. I don't, I don't want other people to lose their money.
0: That's only because uh, Joe Moody helps you out. He yeah, does yes, the picks. Let's yeah. that's,
1: that's, that's give Joe a shout out. Um, Jack Bogle died. Uh, that's what uh, trips this wire here. Jack Bogle, uh, a giant in the investment industry, started uh, Vanguard. And he is the champion of uh, low-fee um, investing. Uh, in which you buy the market uh, or buy pieces of the market, and uh, don't worry too much about uh, other advice. Uh, And that's what Vanguard's all about. It's a less profitable approach. It's an approach that's frowned upon, criticized uh, over the years by people who are more in the way of saying, uh, listen to me, I'll get you the hot stock, I'll do the right thing for you, even, you know, my fees aren't so bad uh you know you're I'll when i you win my we'll way. all win exactly yeah. or you know big institutions uh who uh you know who, who corral customers and say that this is the only way to play the market when you have the guidance of a big institution uh he was more conclusive he was more open got more people into the market and has and did a lot of good uh and a lot of people have in a lot better financial position because of him uh, but, of course, his model was one that was, resulted in less fees for the broker. So as a result, and take this as you will, he died with only only $80 million in his estate, as the Times describes. And you're saying, is that a joke? And the answer is, no, it's not. His contemporaries and folks who were much less innovative than him, uh, associated with Fidelity and other places like that, were multiple, multiple billionaires. And he says, and I think he's a little on the sensitive side. That a lot of the billion, in the billionaire club wouldn't even deal with him. He's a small fish. He's a nobody. Mm. Uh, and uh, only because he felt that investor rights were important, he was a very interesting guy. He also also had a um, heart transplant like 25 years ago, and kept on. But in any event, uh, that is, is a big loss. Uh, but uh, let me give you Jack Bogle's five rules for investing. Success. That's what you want to hear. Get your pencil. This is the time. I'm ready. Five rules. Number one, stay the course. Stay the course, long-term investors. Uh, and I can tell you, I know stats on this, that if the market goes up, let's, whatever market goes up in a particular year, let's call it 8%, the average investor gets less than that, 6%. Why? They buy at the wrong time. Well, they don't buy at the wrong time, they sell at the wrong time. So uh, you just stay the course. Okay. Stay the course, go with the market. too. beware the experts. Beware the experts. Bogle. Quote, "Money managers missed all the warning signs. Excuse me, all the warning signs before the 2008 financial crisis. How could so many highly skilled, highly paid securities analysts and researchers fail to question the toxic filled balance sheets and know that this was going to happen? Experts don't know very much. Number 3, keep costs down. Vanguard is an example of a low-cost investment alternative. Above all, don't pay much in terms of fees." Number four, don't get emotional. Impulse is your enemy. <laughs> and number five, own the entire stock market. Bogle said at the time of this interview, he hadn't bought an individual stock for 25 years. That's it. And uh, I hope you wrote that down. He died penniless. He died <laughs>
0: With just a few million bucks, it, <laughs> why would we listen to his advice?
1: Yeah, you, you have a point. Dale, you're
0: leading our listeners astray. Well, uh, yes. Once again.
1: <laughs> Sorry about that. Listen, it's uh, the problem with the advice is it's boring. It, it, it's not exciting. But you think it works? Uh, there's no question it works. Okay. Mathematically, it works. But I uh, hope you wrote that down. We're not repeating it. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> Die penniless. Well,
0: I'm flailing around uh, looking for a book to read. Yeah okay yeah. and of course uh, because I teach I'm reading all the time yeah. so um, during uh, I'm about to go back uh, to classes and uh, I like to have something kind of entertaining yeah. to read um, to, as a counterpart to all the reading reading I have to do uh, I just finished a really fun book called Circe uh, by Madeline Miller and that was a retelling of the ancient Greek uh, mythology mm. about it's it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it was fun, Daniel. Yeah. Um, but Cersei happens to be um, mainly described as a witch. Mm. So I had witches on the mind, yeah. and then I saw an article of about uh, a trilogy by Deborah Harkness, the All Souls trilogy, and uh, the number one book of that trilogy is called Discovery of Witches. Yeah. So... This writer is actually a historian of science and medicine at USC okay she loved history, she went to Holyoke uh, undergrad, took a um, course she her uh, major was Renaissance studies, took a course called Magic, Knowledge and the Pursuit of Power in the Renaissance and she was you know, gobsmacked. Mm, uh, mm. She just turned her world around. Uh, she ends up uh, going on to grad school at Northwestern, um, at Oxford, uh, where she worked on a dissertation uh, about John Dee, the alchemist and mathematician for Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I. First. Mm. Probably didn't know she had her own mathematician. No, let's go back to the trilogy. Let me hear about the trilogy. um, Fascinated by the um, sort of uh, idea of magic. Mm -hmm. And uh, rumor has it she is related to one of the so-called Salem witches Mm -hmm. as well. Anyway, um, the trilogy is wildly popular, so much so that a television show has been made of it. I think it's like an eight part series so
1: far. It's made and, already? Yeah. It's on the yeah, show? That's not yeah. the one with Matthew Good, is it? Yeah. It is? Yeah. Oh, The Times kind of liked that, but okay. they didn't love it. But th- that's hers? I didn't realize. That's hers. Yeah. And um, uh, well, I, it's kind of,
0: she describes her work as sort of Harry Potter type stuff that, for grown ups. So it's grown up issues. That's the one that
1: I said, and I'm sorry we don't know the name, but anybody will be able to figure it out. But what they're saying is, in the review in The Times, I said, you know something? It's fun, it's good, it's it's high-class cheese, is the way they put it. And they said that everything's... they have All these great English actors, there's only one problem. The woman protagonist is not up to the level of the other actors. So it's a little bit of, uh, you know, there's some teenage girl acting with these... She's these great, out of her depth. Yeah.
0: With these great British actors. Yeah. Uh, but, well, but, anyway, so, I mean, this is exactly the kind of book I'm looking for, right. I think. Uh, the author, Deborah Harkness, describes the books as... Uh, you know, pretty character driven. Not mm. all about. Uh, all know, right,
1: uh, all right. The times, the times. Uh, so they like Matthew. It book. should be fun. So yeah. I'm
0: going to look that up. Okay. Discovery of a Witches by Deborah Harkness. Yeah. Wish me luck. Yeah.
1: All right. So we'll close as I promised at the beginning with a brush with greatness story. So here we are at Mohawk last week. And this is—I think this is. This is, is not
0: uh, the musicians. No, so we, no, no, we, no. There was—we took a break. We, we had to we go to brushed, the spa. We brushed closely with a lot of great mm-hmm. musicians. Yes,
1: we did. But then we took a spa break. Tamsin says to me, "Let's go to the spa. In particular, let's go down to what's the pool described as—the mineral uh, pool or something? It's a hot tub. Yeah, a large hot tub. Out
0: outside right. under the stars. And and.
1: and which is, you know, it's a reasonable request on Tamsin's part, notwithstanding perhaps that they're playing the NFL football playoffs and we could have been watching the football game. But you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm game. I said, okay, we'll do it. Forget the football. Let's go. And here, what the, a guy. Well, that's what. What the, a Here's what guy. happens. This is this is poetic justice. So we head to our respective locker rooms, and Tamsin still hasn't gotten over this, but. Uh, on the edge You make of, it sound like
0: they're team locker rooms. So there was the ladies' lockers <laughs> and the men's right. lockers.
1: I'm on the men's team, and I go into the men's locker room, and they have a little bit of a lounge on the outside, which apparently I've learned since from Ms. Granger that they don't have in the women's. And The, the women do not have a TV. Yeah, and there's a TV there, and uh, which is hard to find in Monk, There aren't too many TVs. And there are two guys sitting there in these big chairs, and there are only two chairs there, uh, watching the NFL playoff game. And I walk in, and uh, and one of the guys is uh, so these has, guys uh, tell their wives we're gonna go have a, have a massage, a, not a, not a, not a, and they're they're a,
0: skipping the massage. Listen, so
1: TV? here we go. I I go in there and I say I see one guy got a big giant football giant sweatshirt. The other guy not so much. They're clearly buddies He's talking, watching the game, and uh, I walk in and I say to uh, them, uh, so what's going on? What's going on in the game? Is uh, you know are the Colts catching up at all? The Kansas City, which is the game. And uh, the guy with the Giants sweatshirt says to me, ah, you know something, they got to touch touchdown on a block punt, but they're not really getting it together. Kansas City's going on, he's telling me what's going on. And I look at him and I say to him, you know, you look an awful lot like Dave Gettleman. Now, Dave Gettleman is the general manager of the Giants. And he kind of looks at me and he looks at his friend and he says to me, I am Dave Gettleman. All right. So, oh, then I said, oh, well, nice to meet you. He asked for my name. We have a nice conversation. I told him Sackleon Barkley was a great pick. I gave him a few, you know. Pointers. Pointers. <laughs> a few points for what he can do in the draft coming up. He's very gracious about accepting my advice. But here's the, and, and I'm saying to myself later, was that really him? Was you it sure it's him? And I, I do look up the picture later. And uh, it's definitely him. So, uh, I felt good about that. But I made one other connection. Um, okay. Okay. Um, when uh, I did look him up, and I was wondering what he was doing down there, by the way, and I did look him up, and I realized when I looked him up that he had been in New York before coaching, and the area that he had lived during Large part was in the White Plains area. Right. Well, you may recall, Miss Granger, that when we were in the, hot, we were tub, in the hot tub, <laughs> that's exactly
0: it. You're getting a lady it. lady from White Plains?
1: Yes, we were.
0: But there was a man sitting next to no, her. No,
1: no, no. She was not part of a no, couple. No, no, no.
0: There, there was a man sitting next to her who got out and
1: left. That was not her husband.
0: So, she, so you're saying, you heard it here first, Gentleman's wife was stepping out on him? <laughs> In I the thought, hot tub? My point is... I'm sorry we're okay. putting this on. <laughs> this is not the purpose of this <laughs> podcast schedule. That's not it? I'm really? saying, really? I'm
1: saying really? no one's stepping out on anybody, but I You're think... You're
0: allie, Mrs. Gettleman. Well,
1: let, me, let me back up half a second. We get into the hot tub, and you have to know that Tamsin starts chatting up the woman next door. Now, let me just pause on that for a second. How many couples go to a hot tub... And the woman starts chatting up other people in the hot tub right away. Is that what we're doing the hot tub for? I was sitting
0: awfully close. Before. Oh, damn damn and, and, and Trying dams to and... be friendly.
1: Exactly. When you're supposed to try to be friendly with your husband. But putting that aside for just a moment, so you're chatting up this woman who tells us that she is from White Plains, and I am putting forward the theory that in fact we were speaking with the wife of Dave Gettleman. That, that's all. That's all I have to report. It's not confirmed 100%. So, uh. It's, probably,
0: it's not confirmed 0%. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> frankly, we don't even know if he's married.
1: Oh, yeah. We do. Oh, we do? Yeah. Okay. So, uh. Wikipedia? Listen, we're ahead of the game. It's not the first time that we have been a half a step ahead of the regular media. Uh. So until next week. This is Tamson
0: Granger. And
1: Dan Abuhoff. With
0: Tamson and Dan, read the paper.
1: See ya.